I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And today I have two co-hosts. I used to have people tell me that they were surprised that they never heard my boys' voices in the background of my recordings, and I told them, well, it's because they are definitely not around when I record, because it would be impossible. But today, I decided to at least have them with me while I started. So, say hi. Hi. Who are you? I'm Ben, and um, I have a black paint sweatshirt. How old are you? Five. Five. Do you know what a podcast is? No. No. Do you think it's exciting or boring? Exciting. Yeah. Eli, you want to say hi? Hi. Who are you? Eli. You're Eli. How old are you? Two. Two. You're going to be three soon. Is that exciting? I'm not two. You're not I, two? I here, want. Sit up here. Sit up here. I want. No, you're two, buddy. I Do you have a sweatshirt on, Eli? No. Are you chilly or warm? Warm. You're warm. Okay. So here's my guys, and I knew it always go off the rails very fast <laughs> if I tried to record with them, but I wanted to introduce them. So here they are. Okay. Thanks for joining me, guys. You want to say bye? Bye. bye. See you later. See you later. See you later. All right. So that was an hour ago. Uh, what happened after that was my boys bargained me into... Playing Super Mario Brothers 3, they cleaned up Uno and a game we call Christmas Match. And we played Super Mario Brothers on my laptop for just 10 or 15 minutes. We read books and I sent them to bed. So that's where they are now. And now, <laughs> now I can record the rest of the podcast. So today's episode is a little bit more history and just background because I wanted this episode to be about the different Christian canons that are in the world, basically. We have the Protestant canon that we already talked about, but then there's also the Orthodox canon, Eastern and Oriental Orthodox, and the Catholic canon. All of those canons have different books that are included in them, and the Protestant canon has the least, and the Oriental Orthodox has the most, but we kind of have to know what those different organizations, those different branches of Christianity are before we start talking about their Bibles, right? So now I'm going to just give you the background that we need for the next episode. So this episode's title at first was Christianity that isn't European and Catholic, mostly. And that's basically what we're talking about is Christianity outside of Western Europe and outside of Catholicism. Okay, there's a lot of different little origin stories and things for, like that for how Christianity got into different countries. Who brought it there? Was it because a king became a Christian and then he declared that the country was Christian? That happened a couple of times. But then other times it's just small communities of Christians living in a country for sometimes hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. And we don't typically know about these countries or think about them too much or think of them as having bigger Christian populations, but they do. And it's sometimes surprising because it's such an ancient Christian population 
that it just doesn't make news or just is just such a normal part of that country's history that we just don't think about it too much. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Background for learning about canon, but also just interesting stuff about what countries of the world has Christianity been in the longest and what countries were influenced by Christianity in their literature in their alphabet and different things like that, okay? And you know I like to talk about alphabets and language, so I'm going to throw that in there wherever I can. Okay, so in the last two episodes, we talked about the early translations of the Bible and the history of the church up through about 1080, mostly just in Europe there. And so this time, I'm going to recap just a little bit. Do you remember the Peshitta and the Septuagint, two of the oldest Bible translations in the world? The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament, remember, is not originally in Greek. It's originally in Hebrew and Aramaic. But the Septuagint is what we call an early group of translations into Greek for the Old Testament. And it was written for, it was translated for, Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt. And Egypt, like the, the people of Egypt, just wanted literature in Greek. So it was done for people that already believed in the Bible and considered it a holy book, primarily. And the Peshitta was done for similar reasons. It was an Aramaic translation of the Bible, or Syriac, translation of the Bible for people that were already Christians or Jews, but needed the Bible in their native language. So what about other people groups or countries and areas that weren't Christian, but ended up with the Bible? Who was that, and how did that end up happening? Well, some countries have a really long, continuous history with Christianity. And one of them, you'll find out, even if you didn't ever think about history or want to study history, you'll find out when you visit Jerusalem in Israel. And if you go to Israel, you should definitely go to Jerusalem. And one of the first things that you'll learn about the city itself is that there's an old city and a new city. The old city, obviously, is the older part of Jerusalem, and it's inside walls, city walls. And you, when you look at them, you think, wow, these are ancient walls. These are the ancient walls of, of Jerusalem. No, sorry, they're not. They're from the Ottoman Empire. They're from the 1500s. They're still incredibly cool to look at. I really love them. Uh, there's different gates with different styles. And if you look at... Um, in the New Testament, where they talk about all the different gates, all of the different gates are still named the same way as they were in ancient times. And you can go around the city walls and look at all of these different gates, and they're beautiful. The most fancy one that I like the best is called the Damascus Gate. It's on the north side of Jerusalem. Most of the time when you visit, you walk through the Jaffa Gate, or I think it's called the Dung Gate. <laughs> Fun name, right? But you go inside the city and the old city. And you'll learn that the old city is divided up into four quarters. And you won't really know this. There's no walls within the city to show you, oh, you're in this quarter now. Oh, you're in this quarter now. There's no signs. There's no walls in between these quarters. But you'll notice by the demographics of the people in those quarters, by the clothing they wear, by the language they speak, by a little bit of the architecture and the artwork, And the four different quarters are the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the Muslim quarter, and the Armenian quarter. 
<laughs> and we're talking about the oddball there because the first three kind of make sense, right? There are three main world religions that are based out of Israel and Jerusalem, Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And then there's this fourth quarter, Armenian quarter. Where and what is Armenia? And why does it have a whole little section of Jerusalem just given to them? Well, here's the story. Armenia, if, in case you don't know, is a really small country up in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, northeast of Turkey, tucked up under kind of like Russia's feet. <laughs> it's tucked up in a, in a little area that is near Chechnya, if that helps you. And Armenia is historically Christian and has a very high Christian population. There were Christians in Armenia as early as the 3rd century, maybe even earlier. But in the 3rd century, the king at the time converted to Christianity, and he declared Armenia to be a Christian nation in 301 AD. Now, that means that Armenia was the first Christian nation in the world. It beat out the Roman Empire with that distinction by 11 years. Constantine declared the Roman Empire to be kind of a safe haven for Christians in 312 AD. So Armenia beat it out by 11 years. Monks moved to Jerusalem in the next 100 years or so and have maintained an Armenian presence in Jerusalem ever since. So the fact that Armenia had a religious presence in Jerusalem for such a long time and the Armenian quarter is where they lived in Jerusalem, and when the city was kind of divided up to different sections, just to kind of keep the peace a bit, Armenians got their own quarter. That's a, that's a smaller section. It isn't as big as some of the other sections. But hey, they have their own section in Jerusalem. And fun fact, the Armenian alphabet was invented by a Christian priest. Next up, we're going to talk about some other people groups and countries where they have their alphabets distinctly tied to missionary efforts to those places. Now, we mentioned a little bit in the last couple of episodes about Germanic tribes in Europe. We say Germanic, right? And we think Germany. But they actually originated up in what we call Lapland or Scandinavia, which is the northern, really northern part of Europe. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and am I forgetting one? I think I got all of them. That's where those Germanic tribes originated. But in the fourth century, they started moving south and conquering everybody. That's basically what they did. One of those tribes was the Goths. And this is the tribe, the Germanic tribe that sacked Rome in, I think it was 410 AD. And before they sacked Rome, they were settled in the area about Austria, in that area. And there were missionaries that traveled north to where the Goths were and began a mission there. And one guy, one of the missionaries, developed an alphabet for Gothic, that was the language, Gothic, and translated the Bible into Gothic. So the Goths, a barbaric Germanic tribe, were one of the first groups of people that had a translation of the Bible. And there is extinct now. There is no people group that call themselves the Goths or Gothic. If you think of Gothic people or Goths, that's a style trend now. It doesn't have anything to do with the race or lineage of the Gothic people. And another fun fact, 
You know the style, the architectural style in Europe that's called Gothic, Gothic architecture? That's actually not Gothic, like the Gothic people either. They didn't make that style of architecture. That was actually a slur, an insult to that kind of style of architecture because the people that were critiquing it didn't like it. They thought it was clunky and ugly and just horrible, not at all flowing or pretty. They thought it was very clunky and barbaric looking. So they're like, ugh, that's like the goths, the barbarian goths. It's so ugly, we're going to call it gothic. <laughs> and it stuck. So we call it gothic architecture. I don't know what it was originally called or considered, but now it's considered gothic. So the goths, the gothic people, got a Bible because of missionaries and their alphabet was invented specifically so that they could translate a Bible into gothic. That's not the only language that had an alphabet developed for it, specifically to support Christianity and translate the Bible into it. In the 900s AD, so much later, the emperor of what is modern-day Ukraine and Russia, the Rus, converted to Christianity and wanted priests and missionaries to come help him and his people learn about Christianity. So he picked Christianity. He actually went shopping for a religion. He considered Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and he picked Christianity. Another fun fact, he actually rejected Judaism simply because he didn't like the prohibitions against drinking and pork. So he's like, Christianity, I like that one. And he picked it, and he wanted missionaries to come help him and his people learn about Christianity. So two of the missionaries that went, Cyril and Methodius, created an alphabet for what is now called Old Church Slavonic, and it's basically pre-Russian. It's what the Russian Orthodox Church still uses in their liturgy and for their sacred books and materials. It's kind of like the Latin for the Russian Orthodox Church. So not long after that, Cyril and Methodius's students created another alphabet. The first one, I guess it didn't work out too well. The second one, we call today the Cyrillic alphabet. It's named after that guy, Cyril. And it is what modern day Russians, Belarusians, and other countries use as their alphabet. It's named after a Christian missionary that created the alphabet just to translate Christian books, documents, and the Bible into Russian. All right. So I really like that story because literacy and alphabets and writing have a lot to do with Christianity. How Christianity spread somewhat follows the story of literacy in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and sometimes in other parts of the world as well. Now here's an odd one and it's going to be odd in the next episode too, okay? This one's a little bit of an outlier and has some tricky history to go along with it. Ethiopia has really ancient ties to Christianity all the way back to the New Testament. Do you remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? This is a story in the Gospels where Philip is miraculously transported to the desert and he sees a chariot and a guy in the chariot reading and the Holy Spirit tells him, go run after that chariot. So they must not have been racing along, right? He caught up to it and he saw that the guy inside, this Ethiopian eunuch, was reading out of a scroll, scroll of Isaiah, and he didn't understand what he was reading. And Philip asked him, do you understand? He said, no, I don't understand. He said, you want me to explain it to you? And he explained it to him. 
and he accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one that he was reading about in Isaiah at the time. And they came across some water, got baptized, and he kept on going back to Ethiopia, and Philip went home. <laughs> and part of the tradition of the Ethiopian church is that Ethiopians have been Christian, that at least some Ethiopians have been Christian all the way since the time of the New Testament. And even there's Christian tradition from early church fathers that they were also Ethiopians at Pentecost, that they could understand their Ethiopic language at Pentecost. And so the Ethiopian church also has ties to the Egyptian church, and they both have a lot of unique traditions and unique styles of things. Another thing is that the king of Aksum, Aksum is an ancient kingdom in Ethiopia. So, you know, there can be different government systems, different monarchies, you know, different systems of government over the same geography. And we have to call them by their, by that kingdom's name. So the kingdom of Aksum, which is where Ethiopia is now, accepted Christianity and the king declared Aksum to be a Christian nation in 330 AD. So Armenia was in 301 AD. The Roman Empire was in 312 AD. And just 20-ish years later, in 330 AD, the kingdom of Aksum declared itself to be a Christian nation. And there has been a large Christian presence in Ethiopia ever since. So Ethiopian Orthodoxy and other Orthodox churches in northeastern Africa are a part of what we call Oriental Orthodoxy. We talked about Eastern Orthodoxy already. Remember that? That's in, in one of the previous episodes. We talked about the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church and a lot of that area, Slavic countries, ones that you think of as being kind of Russian or kind of Greek. That is the Eastern Orthodox Church. When you talk about Egyptian Orthodox and Ethiopian Orthodox and areas right around there, that's Oriental Orthodox. We don't hear much about this part of orthodoxy. But there are approximately 60 million Oriental Orthodox worldwide. If you've ever heard of Coptic Christians, that is a distinctive branch of Christianity from Egypt. The Coptic Christians are Oriental Orthodox. So what's the story with the Oriental Orthodox? Why do we call it that? Well, they're distinct from Eastern Orthodoxy because they didn't agree with some doctrinal statements that happened at a council in 451 AD. So because of those theological issues and the way that they were explained and the way that Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism explained them at that time, they said, we can't go with you on that. That sounds wrong and we're not okay with that. And they broke off from there. So they're distinct from other Orthodox and Catholic churches because they broke off so early in Christian history, that they have kind of a parallel history with Christianity, but it's separate. They don't have the same saints. They don't have the same councils. They don't have the same different doctrinal issues that the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox dealt with. But there are lots of legends and connections with early Christianity in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So here's some of them, right? We just talked about Philip from the New Testament teaching the Ethiopian eunuch 
that's, you know, within years of Jesus going to the cross. There were Ethiopians at Pentecost, according to John Chrysostom. And if you've, if you're confused about what Pentecost is, remember that's when uh, the disciples were in the upper room and they got flames of fire on their head to kind of symbolize the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then they went out and preached the gospel in tongues. Those were different languages because Pentecost was a festival and a whole lot of Jews from different nations would come to celebrate this festival and they would be speaking their home language. So they didn't always understand Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And so the fact that the disciples could preach in their language was a way that they could actually communicate with them. So apparently there might have been Ethiopians at Pentecost as well that the disciples preached directly to them. And this is a legend, this next one, Ethiopian legend, and you can judge for yourself. There was an Ethiopian legend that the Queen of Sheba, you remember the story from, uh, I think it's First Kings, the Queen of Sheba became pregnant by King Solomon. And her son was the first emperor of Ethiopia. So in ancient times, it's very normal for different um, kingdoms to intermarry. Solomon had a lot, of, a lot of different wives and concubines from different countries. I know he had an Egyptian wife, a wife from Ammon, all these different places. So the fact that he at least might have gotten together with the Queen of Sheba, not so weird. Um, but the Ethiopian legend is that Solomon got the Queen of Sheba pregnant and her son by King Solomon was the first emperor of Ethiopia. So when this emperor, Menelik, went to visit his father, King Solomon, Solomon gave him the Ark of the Covenant as a gift. And there is still a church in Ethiopia today that has a church where the Ark of the Covenant is said to be. Nobody is allowed in the church, just one caretaker who continually prays and offers incense, and he lives in the chapel where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be. So if you've ever heard rumors that the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia, this is where that comes from. It's an Ethiopian legend. So moving on to more familiar topics, we mentioned the Protestant canon before, but we didn't mention where Protestantism comes from, right? So just a little bit of background on that. Why do we have a Protestant Bible? Because we have Protestantism. <laughs> where did Protestantism come from? All right, so all through the Middle Ages, people wanted reform in the church. And we talk about the church, we basically mean the Catholic Church. That is the form that has carried on from what it was in the medieval period. And when I say medieval period, I'm talking specifically about the 800s through about the 1300s here. So a 500-year chunk of history is what I'm referring to right here. In that chunk of time, there were lots of problems in the church with structure, how things were structured, and politics and corruption. So we talk about that more in episode eight. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go back, listen to episode eight, and you'll get more details on that. But some of the major problems were things like selling offices of the church for money. So if you needed to fundraise in the church, you could say, okay, whoever wants to be Bishop of Naples, you pay me X number of money and you can be that bishop. Or they'll put it up for auction and say, whoever pays me the highest price, you can be the bishop. 
of this certain area or city. So this was a big problem because then people didn't want that position to teach and preach and serve. They wanted the position for the power and authority that came with it. And you can see how this would cause problems that having a position in the church just for the power and authority of it. Yeah, big problem. So that's just one of the problems that they had all through the medieval period. It was called simony. And sometimes when people were in those positions, because they didn't care about doing the religious duties of that position, they would just be totally absentee. They would never visit the church of that position. They would just never be there. And so other people would have to fill the position in practical terms of doing the actual work that was required. And they would just go off and do their own thing. And even people that we consider to be like good people that did good things did this. Um, So it was a very widespread problem. There were real problems and real attempts to change the situation all through the 800s to the 1300s. There was attempts at reform so many times. I read this Christian history book and it's like every fifth page was mentioning an attempt at a reform. And then some super corrupt pope would come in and ruin all of these attempts at reform. And it would just be this endless cycle of corruption. And it was just very depressing to read, quite honestly. But then there came a period of reform that started to really take off. And this was the Protestant Reformation. And it was just a reform that people really got behind. And it really took off. And it changed a lot of things for the church. Because this Reformation wanted reform not only in practices, in specific um, ways that things were done, such as not selling offices of the church, but this Protestant Reformation also wanted reform in doctrine, in beliefs, in what people believed about the Bible and how to interpret the Bible. And in our modern memory, the Reformation really centers around one guy, Martin Luther, and this is from the early 1500s. And there's really three big names when you talk about the Reformation. One is super popular. If you've never heard of the other two guys, no big deal. Martin Luther is usually the most famous of the three, but two other guys in two other countries were also really big figures in the Protestant Reformation, and they are John Calvin and Huldrych Zwingli. Fun names, right? And they challenged some of the big doctrines in the Catholic Church. And I'm not, you know, this is not a complete list, but it's just some of them that you will probably be able to recognize. One of them was indulgences, paying money to do away with punishment concerning sin. So indulgences is something that you could buy. And this is still a practice today, but it's not nearly as much of a practice as it used to be. That within the Catholic Church, you could buy an indulgence. And this is buy an indulgence to do away with a punishment for a sin. So it's not forgiveness, but paying money rather than dealing with the punishment of that sin. The Catholic Church very often used this as a fundraising tactic, and they actually funded some crusades with indulgences. And here's another fun fact. There were actually crusades. If you think about the crusades, we typically think about them as being armies going to the Middle East to fight Muslims that had conquered different parts of the Middle East, including Jerusalem. 
and it was this religious idea that we need to free Jerusalem from pagan influence. What you may not know is that crusades were actually conducted in Europe against Muslims in Europe, but also against other Catholics in Europe that the Pope or whoever was behind these crusades just didn't agree with, and they would conduct crusades against them. So some indulgences were fundraising for crusades within Europe. So that's messed up. Uh, Some other beliefs and practices that were talked about in the Protestant Reformation and are still different today, communion. Communion is done differently between the Protestant and Catholic Church. Infant baptism was another big one. Anabaptists said that baptism should be for adults only, not babies. Uh, The Catholic Church does infant baptism. The Protestant church is all across the board. Some people do infant and adult baptism. Some people do only one or the other. And in general, dependency on the Catholic church for salvation and a relationship with God was really challenged by the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic church tends to really put an emphasis on the importance of the church and the sacraments as an intermediary kind of conduit between a person and God that to be involved in the Catholic Church and the sacraments is the way to salvation. And the Protestant Reformation said, I don't think so. Everybody can have an independent relationship with God, and the Catholic Church does not need to be an intermediary in that relationship. So that was another big one. So it turned the focus of religion on the Bible and personal relationship rather than liturgy and sacraments. And one of the other dependencies, and this is an important one one for the podcast, what we're going to talk about in future episodes, is that people really didn't like the insistence of the Catholic Church on Latin being the only language of the Bible. And this was just a Western Europe thing, Latin being the church language and the Bible language. Up until this point, it was only acceptable for the Bible to be in Latin in the Roman Catholic Church. Meanwhile, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there were Bibles in Russian, Armenian, Gothic, Georgian, Greek, Aramaic, Coptic, Ethiopic, and more. It wasn't until John Wycliffe in the 1300s that there was a complete English Bible. (laughs) And he didn't even really do that great of a job because he didn't translate it from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. But there had been portions of the Bible before that, like you might have a book of Psalms in your language, whether that was French or Italian or English, but there wasn't a complete Bible in English until the 1300s. In the 1500s was when lots of European languages got their own Bible translation. Uh, For instance, Spanish, Castilian, Castilian? I'm not going to say it right. I'm sorry. (laughs) Got a Bible translation in, I think it was 1535 or somewhere right around there. So Spanish got a Bible translation about the same time as English did. Um, So yeah, there were a lot of differences that the Protestant Reformation really focused on of really challenging Catholic doctrine And one of the famous ones that Martin Luther is known for is justification by faith. 
that means that he was saying, look, we are not given salvation on the basis of what we do. We're given salvation on the basis of our faith in Jesus, in what we believe he is and he will do for us. And the Catholic Church said, no, it is faith and works. You need to have faith in Jesus and do the sacraments. You need to have faith and work out your salvation. And you know what? Both are in the Bible. So work that, work that out. And uh, we might do a podcast on that um, because there is one Hebrew word used in the Old Testament that reflects both. So don't let either of those things scare you or think, oh, no, i got to prove it's justification by faith. Um, slow down a bit. James talks about how we are to work out our faith with fear and trembling. There is a product of our faith which should be evident. But the Catholic Church was focusing on the sacraments and liturgy as that working out, whereas Martin Luther was saying we don't need it through the liturgy and the sacraments to work out our faith. So that was one big distinction. So because the Protestant Reformation rejected the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, that means they broke away from the structure of the church. And once you break away from a structure, you're left without a structure and you either need to create a new one or basically have anarchy going on, right? But because Protestantism came out of a rejection of one structure, that means that there are many more that kind of came in to fill its place. So that's why there are so many Protestant denominations is because it was a rejection of one structure, not a specific creation of a new structure. It was different beliefs and different uh, traditions that they wanted to follow or emphasize, different portions of the Bible that they wanted to emphasize, but it wasn't specifically to create a new structure. So now in the world today, there are so many different Christian denominations, Anabaptists, Anglicans, Lutherans, Amish, Mennonite. Uh, Calvinists, uh, Reformed, um, Baptists, uh, Pentecostals, Evangelicals, and on and on and on it goes, right? So this separating from the hierarchy and structure of the church just led to many, many smaller groups. And we call all of those smaller groups that generally accept all of those same terms of what we just discussed that are different from the Catholicism, we just call them all Protestants. Now, some of them had some pretty weird starts. Um, the Church of England, also called the Anglican Church, started because King Henry VIII in 1534 wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't give him one. So <laughs> he took advantage of the Protestant Reformation and a desire for religious reform and change and made his own church. And he took some ideals from Catholics and some from Protestants and that's why the Anglican Church or the Church of England looks kind of Catholic and kind of Protestant because it's kind of half and half. He made his own thing and he took ideals from both sides and made his own church. Uh, Pilgrims and Puritans both came out of the Church of England. And that's a long story. I read about it and it's pretty interesting, but it's too long to go into. And then there's also, like I said, Calvinists and Lutherans and also Methodists. And there are lots of small differences in beliefs and traditions. 
and emphases on different biblical passages that they see as key to their beliefs and traditions. After the early 1500s, there was the Western Church, which was the Catholic Church, and then the Protestant branch, which came out of it, which had lots of different groups within it. Some groups have similar structure and beliefs and liturgy to the Catholic Church, such as the Anglicans and Lutherans, and others are very different, such as the Baptists and Evangelicals. Those are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, okay? So there's your short history of the Protestant Reformation and where Protestants come from. So I hope that wasn't too much history for you. We're almost done with all the history stuff we need to do. But I needed to give you some background before we talked about what are the major differences between the Bibles of all of these groups, okay? And that's what we're going to talk about next. And that gets pretty interesting. And it makes me appreciate our Bibles so much more. It really makes me less worried about what Bible I use and what the Catholics use and what the Orthodox use. And I had a little bit of anxiety going into studying all these different groups to think, oh no, I'm going to have to pick sides and tell you why this is wrong and this is right. I wasn't going to do that, but I felt like I would have to kind of fudge over it. We can relax about that. We're going to talk about a lot of good stuff with these groups and the Bibles that they have. And it's not stressful. Okay, I promise. It'll be good. All right, so I'll see you guys next time. And you have a good day. All right. Bye.